Mom podcast. We had to take a small break from recording our podcast since COVID-19 wreaked havoc on academic schedules as well as most everything else in the world. We had to figure out a new way of recording the podcast since we could no longer do it in person. We are finally ready to restart recording and in line with the global agenda, we will do a couple of episodes on COVID-19 and its social, political and economic impacts in Turkey and around the world. Today, our guest is Seçil Yilmaz, a historian of the late Ottoman Empire and the Middle East and an expert on epidemics. And we will talk today about COVID-19 in relation to other epidemics in, in human history. Let me briefly introduce her to you. Seçil Yilmaz is an assistant professor of history at Franklin Marshall College. She specializes in the social and political history of the Ottoman Empire and modern Middle East with a focus on gender, sexuality, and medicine. Her research concentrates on the social and political implications of syphilis in the late Ottoman Empire by tracing questions of colonialism, modern governance, biopolitics, and gender. Her other projects include research on the relationship between religion, history of emotions, and contagious diseases in the late Ottoman Empire, as well as history of reproductive health technologies and humanitarianism in the modern Middle East. She is currently revising her dissertation, Love in the Time of Syphilis, Medicine and Sex in the Ottoman Empire, 1860-1922, into a book manuscript. Before joining Franklin and Marshall College, she held Mellon Postdoctoral Fellowship at the Society for the Humanities and Near Eastern Studies at Cornell University as part of the 2016 cohort on the theme of skin and the 2017 cohort on the theme of corruption. Her research appeared in the Journal of Middle East Women's Studies and she is currently the co-curator of the podcast series on women, gender and sex in the Ottoman world at Ottoman History Podcast. Welcome to the show, Sitchit. Thank you, Denise, for having me. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast with a different capacity this time. You were the guest rather than the host of the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is exciting. Let me just jump into our questions since we have so little time. As we also noted in your bio, you work on the social and political implications of syphilis in the late Ottoman Empire. It's a sexy topic, and all pun intended. Right. Not only because it has deep impacts on the everyday lives of ordinary Ottoman subjects in a century characterized by massive social and political transformation, but also because it provides a gateway into discussing other topics such as mobility, gender, health, sexuality, race, racialization, and class, both at the level of the individual bodies and the level of the body politic. Could you please tell us how you got interested in this topic and how your initial research guided the larger questions that drive your work? Thank you, Denise. This is a, this is a big question. And let me try to take it part by part. How I get to my topic is uh, but I think the inspiration came from the time period and the ways in which how questions about social history, social history of 
women and gender and sexuality was affected by the imperial turn, if I may say. So just to make it a little bit more legible for the listeners, uh, we've been studying women's history and gender history in the Ottoman Empire predominantly by looking at the intellectual development, women's education, their visibility in the society. And there was this particular emphasis that this is kind of the history of the middle classes. What about the experiences of everyday life? So that question that I've been thinking about, how do we get into the experience of women, especially women whose names we cannot really reach, but they basically, the marginalized and regular women and their life experiences. And I had a particular interest in body, like women's bodies. So this is where the initial interest came from. Like, how do we write history of reproduction and history of childbearing, history of motherhood, of people whose names we won't remember, we won't know, we won't, re- we won't be able to reach by simply going to the archives. So the whole uh, research took a very significant turn, and I know this is the case for a lot of anthropologists. Uh, when you go to the field, things abruptly change. The same thing happened to me when I went to the archives and actually met a man who committed suicide, an army member from late Ottoman context, who committed suicide because he got syphilis and left an, a very touching letter addressed to his family, to state, to the doctor who couldn't really treat him, giving all this amazing information in a couple of lines and with a lot of emotions embedded in it. So what I realized is a man do cry as well. And actually, it's very tangible, right? Like in the in the police record. So that kind of like made me think about like broader context of what is health, what is morality, what is sexuality, what did body mean for men as well. And in this particular context, I think we have been very lucky as a generation, as a cohort of historians and anthropologists and social scientists, that we kind of our studies evolved around the questions of queer studies as well. So my entire theoretical engagement is also the product of those conversations, ongoing conversations about the ways in which our queerness actually shapes our understandings of body, history, and broader question, empire, right? Like what is an empire? So this is kind of like a short-ish story of my introduction to syphilis and all the other questions behind it. In addition to our common interest in bodies and thinking about gender not as another word for woman or women, but from a queer theory perspective of uh, the creation of differences, ongoing creation of differences has informed my work thought. The second commonality we share is our focus on mobility. Right. You stress in your wonderful article, if our listeners have not read it, I highly recommend it. The title of your article is Threats to Public Order and Health, Mobile Men as Syphilis Vectors in Late Ottoman Medical Discourse and Practice. In this article, you focus on soldiers, sailors, and migrant workers in the late Ottoman Empire since they are thought to be the vectors of syphilis, as your title indicates, and many regulations are devised to deal with male mobile populations. Right. So we see a commonality here with COVID-19 pandemic, 
and all pan- pandemics around the world since it's so hard to limit people from moving. Right. Migrant workers, immigrants, refugees, international students, and other regularly and irregularly mobile populations came under the spotlight in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So could you compare syphilis in the late Ottoman Empire and COVID-19 today in terms of how they're related to mobility? Of course, thank you. I agree with you. I mean, mobility is a very key concept that I think as social scientists, we need to like keep digging in historically and to be able to understand today. But of course, comparing the notion of mobility in the 19th century and today is very difficult because oh, if only we look at it, we contextualize them and understand their impact. So ju- I'll start with the 19th century context. It's a novelty, honestly. It's especially starting from uh, mid 19th century ish, the means of transportation and the reasons and the demands for transportation, like moving from one place to another, for for particular reasons, actually became. It was new, but at the same time necessary and actually facilitated by the state itself. Let me be more clear about that. For example, conscription, the entire concept of conscription and mobilizing men, especially able-bodied men, to serve in the military became the number one concern of the Ottoman Empire and any other state actually in that context. So that kind of expanded the demand and the needs and the reasons that the whole raison d'etre of the context of mobility. The second thing is, especially again in the post, uh, in the second half of the 19th century, all this investment going into urban development and uh, infrastructure combined with the agricultural crisis, especially in 1873, the famine, prompt the mobilization of these possessed uh, peasants all over the Ottoman Empire and pour into the big cities to find jobs, basically to earn their bread and send it back to, or travel back to home to feed their families. So these two contexts, of course, are very important and it it made a big difference in people's lives in this particular context. So compared to today, of course, what we understand from mobility today is, is on a global scale. Right, We are basically, a lot of people are stuck in one continent and cannot move to another continent. But there is sometimes an, an element of pleasure, the, the right to travel, to go to the holiday uh, vacation is embedded in it. But also this whole notion of moving around so that you can actually find a job is, is kind of embedded in it. So our motives for moving around kind of transformed or neoliberalism gave it a different color. How did these impact it? It's actually shocking to see the very first reflex of the uh, structure that we call state gives to the notion of mobility when there is an epidemic. The first thing is really shutting down the borders. So borders is another thing that we need to think together when we're thinking about mobility. So borders, whose borders? How do we define these borders? Uh, in the 19th century context, Ottoman Empire, uh, the imperial governance, uh, the government ac- actually put a lot of efforts to regulate the motion of certain segments of the population, like peasants and the workers. But the main concern is not to protect everywhere, but actually Istanbul. So if you want to enter to Istanbul, you needed that Mürür Teskeres, a domestic passport. If you're a syphilitic, 
you have to obtain an, an medical record from the village, from the imam or from the physician, local physician, that will give you an, a syphilis negative report so that you can basically enter to Istanbul. In this context, it's really, again, what our experience informed by COVID is immensely global and actually reminded our, uh, us, just looking at the European Union context, it's very nation-state oriented. So France shut down its borders, Italy shut down its borders, and then entire Europe shut down its borders uh, for the United United States of America. So it's fascinating actually to observe how what we thought of like a global village is actually very easy to switch it back to the nation state border. So I think it's very productive to think about along those lines, the, the meanings that we attribute to mobility and borders in the COVID context. Precisely on that question of the nation state giving rise to borders and new modes of governing. The idea of governing but by acting on the whole population was a very new idea in the early, early modern period. This mode of governance has been theorized as biopolitics by the French philosopher Michel Foucault. And you also use this theoretical framework to analyze practices of government ranging from public health education to, as you just mentioned, domestic passports to eugenics. Today, it seems that we are at a turning point in terms of biopolitical regulation. As a historian who studies the birth of these practices, what changes or continuities do you see in terms of biopolitics as induced by the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you, Dennis. This is another big question. Well, <laughs> um, just to maybe simplify what I think of like what biopolitics is in my own work and also the ways in which I think about it today uh, to make that connection a little bit more practical is basically simply biopolitics, the power to regulate life and death, right? So in the, in the 19th century Ottoman context and the ways in which that I study emergence of public health as the state agenda, as the Ottoman Empire's new imperial tool to basically cultivate certain ways of being, behaving, cultures of acting to make sure that the population is healthy mm-hmm. because the empire needs able-bodied people and healthy people for the progress of the quote-unquote nation, quote-unquote race, right? So there is a celebration of life. There is all those efforts informed by um, a moral understanding, a moral context in which science and medicine developed. So just to give an opening parenthesis here, it is not a coincidence that when we read about the modernization of the Ottoman Empire, opening of a modern military school and opening of a medical school becomes the origins, the beginning of the modernization. So this is really how the concerns about the body and public health and the um, well-being of the population is so immanent, so embedded into the idea of 
survival of the sick man, if you consider it, or basically the progress of the imperial politics, the progress of the state itself, right? So in the, therefore, their reactions towards not only epidemics, which were basically 19th century was the age of epidemics, if you consider plague and cholera and other disease, were basically Ottoman imperial center and the medical school was at times alerted about those epidemics visiting the entire realm of the Ottoman Empire. And if you take that context and compare it to today, there are a lot of differences because actually public health became, over the time, through the politics of welfare stared, and human rights, right? The ways in which that we access to health services as human rights. So in the 19th century context, we studied the resistances towards medical policies because people resisted it. But I think in a very Gramscian way, there is a moment, there has been a turn in which providing those services became the hegemonical tool of the state itself in the course of the 20th century, obviously, with all these dis- discussions attached to it about citizenship and so on and so forth. Uh, would you like to give some examples of those resistances? Because I think that in, in your work, they come out quite vividly. Of uh, course. In, especially in terms of mobility and how people resist being kept in one place. Absolutely. What I would like to imagine, I mean, of course, part of this is fiction in a way, but for a 19th century and a peasant who is basically living in the mountains of an Anatolian town, the interaction with the state has two folds. Either I'm imagining a man in this context that that man is going to be conscripted into the army. So the first person knocking at the door is either a, a military member who would like to conscript the man into the army. And the second interaction with an individual embodying state is a doctor. Basically, doctor touches that body. So there are a lot of examples, like one particular example, obviously, to be able to move from, to travel from one place to another. Ottoman government issues domestic passports alongside with some sort of medical passports for the soldiers and the workers, showing that they have a syphilis negative health status so that they can travel. As one of the Ottoman doctors say that, I mean, this whole documentation is useless. The idea is good, but the tool is not functioning because people forge it by using um, assets, right? And they're not forging it in some like underground shop, they're forging it on Galata Bridge, right. like open and in daylight. So, so the, I mean, this is like a very simple form of um, resistance. But another way was, I think this is also very impressive in before World War One, when there are very new medical innovations taking place. Bessim Amar, who was the head of the health department at the time, reported that men were basically avoiding being conscripted into army by vaccinating themselves with syphilis. So they were basically infecting themselves and getting a report of infection so they can basically be exempted from the uh, service. But unfortunately, of course, science, I mean, quote-unquote, unfortunately, science progresses very quickly and they actually found a blood test that would basically show that their stage of syphilis wasn't contagious, so they were still conscripted into the army. So these are like very creative ways of like really dealing. 
So, but today's context, so what I would call 19th century context, no matter what coercive power that medicine translates into, it's quote-unquote pro-life. It's about preventing disease and protecting life and extending the life. It's really about child mortality, maternal health, so on and so forth. And today, with the COVID context, first, what we see is actually the the difficulties of establishing a proper public health systems to basically contain an epidemic like this one, even though we are very, I mean, we are very, as a society, we are very disappointed by our lack of progress uh, in terms of science, even though we thought that we were very progressed. We've never been modern, maybe it will fit into this context nicely. And what I see also, the ways in which we talk about COVID is very important. I think the language and the discourse in terms of comparison, that it's really about numbers. Checking checking numbers every day. How many people died? How many tested applied? So like translating the entire information, the entire affect of the disease into numbers, and especially people who died, right? Like the first thing that we look at, the people who are infected and how many people died, and how we feel about this, like what's the effect? How does this experience is translated, this experiences with numbers is translated into numbers is important. So what I think, probably I'm not the only person, but what I think of is like, it, the, the, the ways in which we think about biopolitics is no more that pro-life, but actually death, regulating death is definitely part of it. And rationalizing death is part of it. And COVID has also had a very significant impact, even though we haven't processed it yet, but we will process it uh, when this is so sort of over. What is grief? Like, how did we grieve? And how do we grieve when an epidemic as such hits the society and people cannot even perform the very basic practice and traditions of mourning and griefing and burying their loved ones and rationalizing COVID itself in that context. Do you have lessons from history for our grieving methods or burial issues or anything in general, really? Well, there is this literature about death practices, like what were the practices about Dying is also a new and emerging field. Uh, Shane Minkin's book uh, came out about Egypt, Alexandria. Also, uh, in the Ottoman context, uh, Nuran Yildirim has a fascinating article titled Karantina Istemezuk, in which uh, she basically uh, writes about this resistance towards the quarantine institution and the ways in which her burial practices actually constituted one of the most significant um, points that, I mean, a collective reaction, a collective resistance that people voiced because the state wanted to touch, wanted to own, wanted to bury by canceling all of these traditional practices and people just did not accept it. So it's a a great article. I I couldn't do justice um, summarizing it. But this is a field that, yeah, it's an emerging field in anthropologically that we have also studies. Asta Zengin is doing one uh, brilliant work. So Yeah, her last article on the burial of trans women yeah. featured also in this Allegra lab. Right. So we can put that in the show notes too. We have to wrap it up soon. So before we finish, you said that you were working on 
finishing your book manuscript. Could you tell us a little bit about your uh, book? Absolutely. And then could you tell us about your new projects? Of course. Thank you. Well, about the book, it's a uh, revision of the, the dissertation that you announced at the beginning of the podcast. I am basically trying to understand late Ottoman Empire through, uh, through the lens of syphilis, which gives us an, an amazing intersectional tool to understand medical discourse and understandings, the ways in which they shaped gender dynamics and sexuality, love and desire, and how scientific developments, scientific discoveries about this particular non-human agent of history transformed uh, the ways in which people understood uh, what morality is, what proper sexuality is, what family is, and so on and so forth. So I'm really excited about, and I, I've always been excited about the research part of it and the dissertation writing part of it, and I'm really excited about turning into a book. And a lot of the things that we discussed in the podcast actually kind of embedded in that project in, that, in, in many ways. For the future project, it's uh, so I, I am really kind of like vetted with the topics about biopolitics in a way. And my side project that has been evolving these days is about intimate technologies of family making uh, is the title of the work that I'm looking at reproductive technologies, especially birth control pills and IUDs uh, coming to Turkey in 1960s with the sponsorship of Population Council, USAID and UN. And in collaboration with the Turkish doctors, the ways in which how in the regions like Ankara, Yozgat and Eastern Turkey, they became popular among women for the state, the global agents had a different agendas, Turkish officials had different agendas and women had a different agenda in trying to obtain those technologies. So the piece, which might become a book uh, eventually is discussing how those different agendas actually collapse together uh, in the age of developmentalism. Other future projects, oh my God. <laughs> so, um, so I, in the ways in which I'm basically trying to change gears a little bit from medicine and body, but seems like I won't be able to do that. I have a brief introduction to studying leprosy and uh, in the light of uh, both religion, so looking at it from a religious perspective, but also in the context of affect, of disgust, so an ugliness. So the potential project that I'm still collecting uh, material about is going to be leprosy and disgust. Very interesting. Looking forward to reading them too. Thank you. Sitchit, thank you so much for this conversation. We rarely have this much um, parallel to talk about today in history on this podcast. So it was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Denise. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. If our listeners found this conversation interesting, they should definitely check out the Jadalia Roundtable that Sitchil and three other Middle East historians Joel Abi Rashid, um, Taylor Brand, and Christopher Rose participated in. The title is Middle East History in the Time of COVID, a roundtable on disease environment in medicine.
And you can also find out more about Stacey Dion Lossesberg in her academia website and several other websites listed in our show notes. In our next episode, we will continue our COVID-19 series with anthropologist Dana Bowles and talk about the pandemic from a perspective of political ecology. Thanks again, Sitchit, and thank you all for listening. Keep following us.